All right, so this morning we do look to specifically uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will make our way from verse 1 uh, to verse 12. We've read it moments ago, so I won't be reading it again, but we will go verse by verse through the text. So uh, this particular chapter examines uh, the plight of Israel as an example to us, the Church of God. So I've simply entitled this sermon, Remember Israel. Uh, We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. In this passage, uh, Paul wanted to bring the Corinthians to a sense of God's judgment and his wrath toward Israel. So we know that Paul is wanting to provide for us an example of how God acts toward his people, but specifically in the areas of judgment and wrath. But even more, Paul wanted to remind them to be careful, to be careful, to be mindful. This is a call to be mindful in the face of the God who is wrath and brings wrath upon those who are disobedient and rebellious against him. So he calls them to be careful, to be mindful. But then we must ask the question, what attribute must we possess that ties us to ancient Israel? How then are we to act in a careful manner? And how then do we conduct ourselves with caution? Uh, What should be true of us in order for us to gain something from Paul's example toward ancient Israel. So as we examine the Lord's work in ancient Israel and his work in us, the church, we know first that there's distinction, but also what then should be said of us? What should be qualities that you and I possess as we are those who are careful and mindful of how God dealt with Israel and then how we ought to respond in kind? It should be said that we are or should be those who fear. We should be those who fear. We should be those who are reverent before the Lord, those who are humble before his face. Why is that? Well, there's a few reasons, and Paul brings them up even in our text. But just from what you and I know, as we have even walked through our Old Testament reading uh, on the Sundays that we have done so, and also have studied Old Testament passages, we know that many times Israel was none of these things. They did not fear. They were not humble. They were not laid low on their own. They certainly weren't reverent before the God of Israel, and consequently, they experienced very personal, divine, and intimate judgments from the hand of God. God specifically dealing with them where they were in the area of judgment. So then again, Paul reminds that we must be mindful and careful, for if we rebel against God, and specifically, he's referring certainly to the Corinthians, but if the Corinthians and or us Uh, rebel against God, if we specifically and they continue down their rebellious path, then they would experience the same wrath from the same God who dealt justly with Israel. So his wrath was just. The bar of God's justice has not changed. And I believe that that is what Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians, that the bar of God's justice has not changed. For that sentiment is the great myth of today. But I believe that as you as you and I walk through this text, you're going to see that the bar of God's justice is certainly merciful. He's fair, but he's also exacting. He tells you exactly what he's going to do in the uh, face of his own work by his own hand. If there's to be judgment rendered, he tells you specifically what that will look like. And I believe that Paul is speaking for him specifically as an apostle as a messenger from him, and as one who is very much acquainted with Christ 
as an apostle of Christ. So throughout this context, Paul walked the Corinthians through a very specific part of Israel's history. It doesn't read as Stephen's sermon does or Peter's sermon does in Acts or even at places where Paul defends himself in Acts. It's not simply a survey of Israel's history or of Israel's response, but he goes to very specific places that are true about Israel. He goes to very specific events where God deals with Israel in a very intentional way. He placed them before very specific attributes or perfections of God, meaning God's character. He placed them before them and his dealings with his people. Namely, as Paul walks through these particular events that we are about to discover, he points to God's justice. He points to his wrath. He points to his jealousy, his omnipotence. That is to say he's all powerful, his Sovereignty. That is to say he rules eternally and reigns uh, over all things, just to name a few. But Paul was not simply giving them something that he wanted them to approach as though they were hearing it the first time. But rather he called them to recollection. He called them to recollection. So we have to understand that the thing about the Corinthians And the reason that Paul goes to warn them about Israel's stubbornness is because they at times show the quality of stubbornness, that they have heard things and they're not responding the way that they should respond. And so he's telling them there's consequences for that because you've heard it before. It'd be different if they've never heard these things, if it was the first time that they're being called to account. But they're an established church. And so they have a mantle that is theirs that belongs to God in Christ and a testimony that should point uh, the people of that particular region to God and to Christ. And so Paul is saying, I, I need you to remember. I need you to remember. <clears throat> Look at verse one with me. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. I do not want you to be unaware. So then for Paul, as we look at this, we know that this is connected to what is said before. And the reason is we know it because of the way this is constructed. For I do not want you to be unaware. We know that he's not introducing necessarily a new point. He's, ex- he's explaining a point that he's made before. We're given the implication then of not running the race properly. So that is what he's attaching this to. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verses 26 to 27. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And then he launches into what he says about warning concerning Israel. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that all our fathers were that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So then Paul is, again, giving the implication. He's tracing that and launching them forward to understand the consequence of not running the race properly and even the consequence of preaching theoretically in such a way where there is no practice that stems from the proclamation. One who is living against what he preaches. So he says, I do not want you to be unaware because, quite frankly, Israel at times would testify about Yahweh, but they would live against that testimony. So it wasn't always that they failed to testify. It was that they failed to live in accordance 
with the testimony. So by the time we get to where Christ is in the New Testament uh, or transitioning to the New Testament, they are guilty of that over and over again. So even still, notice, however, that Paul appealed to them as brethren. He appealed to them as brethren. You are his by virtue of the new birth. Well, that was true of what he said as he began to catalog their faith and salvation in chapter one. But what he's saying is you would do well to consider you are not his if you sin in the way that Israel does and thus incur the same judgment as Israel incurred. So he's essentially calling them to test themselves. So he's saying to us, remember Israel, remember how they failed to test themselves Remember their sins and their errors, but also remember that you are his in as much as you persevere in this war against sin. So he goes back to the true sense of who the Israelites really were and the true sense of Judaism as understood through the Old Testament covenants with God's nature and will working through those covenants. And so he's saying, remember Israel that way first. Remember them that way. Because he begins with uh, the forefathers. He appealed to what is true concerning the fathers in verse one. Specifically, he brought them to the understanding of God's wrath against the Israelites. However, before he does that, he showed the Corinthians how the Israelites took God's mercy for granted. So there wasn't always a place in which God simply poured out his wrath upon the Israelites. It was that first God granted them mercy. And in the face of God's mercy, they responded in such a way so as to make light of it. And therefore, the consequence was that God responded with his judgment. As you look at this first verse that leads into the second and also that leads into the fourth. But we look at them just verse by verse to understand the sequence of events that take place. For he says in verse two, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. And then we'll get to how they responded and how that was not good enough. Essentially, God first delivered them. That's what Paul is appealing to. He's saying God delivered them. And you can see how he's intersecting this point uh, by implication into the minds and hearts and practice of the Corinthians. Because what did God do for the Corinthians? He delivered them. He delivered them from death. He delivered them from the kingdom of darkness and saved them and brought them into the kingdom of light. So first he appeals to Israel and God's deliverance. God delivered them. He made his presence known to them as God himself marched them out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying that God was with you. So that is the first thing that he points out. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud. So they were consecrated before the Lord and followed the prophet and were led by the prophet, but by God in him and God through him and God literally marching them out and delivering them. So they were there with Moses and they were there specifically and more importantly with God because God was working in and through Moses. So God first delivered them. He makes his presence known. And then as he takes them out of the land of Egypt, they're going through the Red Sea. And we know what happened there as God destroyed those uh, Egyptians, including Pharaoh's uh, army. 
who was following the Israelites uh, into the wilderness and out of the land of Egypt to destroy them. And so God was with them. And those events are cataloged in Exodus. However, what you see is also that God revealed himself to them as he led them out. He revealed himself as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, the text tells us. So here what Paul says, it may seem confusing, but it's not confusing as we progress a little bit further. Because we must see where he is going and we have to continually tie it to why he's warning Corinthians uh, about it. For to us, he is reminding that Moses was like or as God. Now, listen, he was like or as God in his function, not by Moses's nature. So Moses did not become God, but he became God's regent. He became God's ambassador. When he spoke, it was though God was speaking. And we know that God told him that directly. And he told him that that's how I want you to represent me to my people. He wanted them to understand that to be with Moses was to be baptized into him and it meant to be baptized into God. So if you stood with Moses, you were consecrated to God. You were baptized in God. Moses was not God. I remind you that. So the phrase that he says is he's saying as his regent, as one who is prophet and leading you out and God giving him the mantle to do so. He is a representative of me and you following him. You are following me. So Moses is not God, but he's certainly God's prophet and God's voice to the people. So Moses was the one to ultimately point them and us to Christ. So when you look at verse four, especially the second part where he says they're drinking from the spiritual rock, which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Well, we refer to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. That's Moses speaking to that second generation further down the line from the events we're referring to. So then the point is to stand with Moses was to stand with God. To partake with Moses was to partake with God. To remain in Egypt was then to reject God. To complain against Moses was to complain against God. To rebel against Moses was then to rebel against God. It is why later Jesus makes the reference to Moses against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. He says to them in John chapter 5 verses 45 to 47, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Now listen to this. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how, you will, how, how will you believe my words? So in the time of Christ, they were only laying superficial claim to Moses and obedience to Moses and obedience to Moses's law. For you see how even Christ regarded Moses and his acts as nearest to himself. So Paul is appealing back to that. He's giving us a clear picture of that. 
that what Moses did authenticated Christ. Because why? Christ is the fulfillment of the prophets. But even in this particular instance, I truly believe that what Paul is saying is Christ was there. Christ was there. And you were either partaking of Messiah or you were rejecting Messiah at that time. Now, let's trace that just for a moment here. If they're rejecting Messiah by not following Moses, who is supposed to point them to the Messiah, then why would you think they would be obedient to Messiah later down the line when he actually appears? The expectation was still there, however. And certainly God responds to their rejection. He speaks then of the spiritual fellowship and the faithfulness in verses two and three that was expected and took place for the Israelites under Moses. They were supposed to be united. They were not supposed to be complaining and grumbling and rebelling. But then we're brought to a specific account in verse four that highlights what has been said before. We keep looking at this, but what Paul says is and what Paul has interpreted for us by the Holy Spirit was that the rock mentioned was symbolic of Christ. It was symbolic of Christ. For it was not simply a rock as understood to be so, but that all of the Israelites, as Moses struck the rock, that all of the Israelites drew their sustenance from that rock. They were to draw their water, that which they needed to survive in the wilderness from the rock. So the rock provided all that was essential to the survival of the Israelites. And it was Moses who brought them before the rock. It was him who brought them before the rock and struck it to draw water for them to drink. But this is not simply a positive account, because, as I mentioned, there's judgment in view as Paul moved to what we said at the outset. For this is about reminding the Corinthians and you and I to remember where they failed and where they sinned against God so that we will not sin and fail so that we ourselves are not disqualified from the race. Look at verse five. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Doesn't say he wasn't pleased with the rock, says with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. This is exactly what God did to them. This is not what they did to themselves or for themselves. For they did not bring themselves low. They were not the ones to do this. In fact, even grammatically, this is in the passive tense, meaning something happened upon them. But in this instance, it was not that they were simply taught humility. It is not that they had brought themselves low, but this is Paul's way of showing that they were humbled. So they were brought low first and then they were destroyed. So they were humbled first. And then they were destroyed. It wasn't that they were simply destroyed in their pride. Their pride was killed and then they were killed. It wasn't simply that they were taught humility. But that they were brought low before him and then his destruction was visited upon them. You and I have an idea of this as we have read texts such as every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that means everyone will be brought low and humbled. And those who aren't his, they make the same confession that we do, but their end result is destruction. They will be destroyed by his hand. 
Here, Paul is referring to that first generation of Israelites who did not make it. He's referring to them specifically. And he's giving them as an example to the Corinthians and to us, the church, how not to function in the eyes of God. Those who did not make it to the portion of the promised land. Well, why didn't they make it? He says, because God was not well pleased. He was not well pleased with them. Paul, by the spirit, showed us why God was not well pleased. First, we must ask ourselves, why did these things happen? For what purpose, again, do they serve to the Corinthians? For what purpose do they serve to us? Well, Paul says it explicitly. Verse six. Now, these things happened not simply as historical record, not simply as life principles, but they happened as examples for us. Something you and I should take great pains to learn, to study and to examine with great scrutiny. Examples for us so that here's your purpose, so that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. So these things serve as examples to us. The purpose for the example is not one that is simply prescribing to us an act. But that it is that we must examine the particular acts. So it's not these are examples because I've heard people misquote this. Well, we need to follow Israel's example. No, you don't need to follow Israel's example in every part. Because here it doesn't say we have to imitate Israel. In fact, it says the opposite. It says stay away from the things that they craved. Don't simply do as Israel has done. How's that for your replacement, so-called replacement theology? Because you can't categorically apply everything Israel did to yourself. Because there are things that the Holy Spirit and that God in his scripture and in his word through the testimony of his apostles are telling us you need to avoid many things Israel did. There's things that Israel did that you shouldn't do. There's particular acts that Israel performed that I don't want you to perform. So it's not simply prescribing the acts that we must imitate from Israel. Again, it's the opposite. Paul is calling the Gentiles to refrain from the sins of Israel, to study, examine, interpret their acts across the board And then look at what they've done and look at how God responded. And you need to do that which would garner God's pleasure. One can only do that with a new birth, with a new heart, a new nature in Christ. The purpose so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Here we see something that is a problem for the Corinthians that Paul warns them about. He warned the Corinthians to adjust their appetite. He warned the Corinthians to adjust their appetite because to this point, there are several issues with them. I don't want to simply pretend that there is one issue. But one that seems to continue with them is their appetite. They desire at times evil things that God has not given them because nothing evil comes from the hand of God. He is a good God. He is benevolent, eternally benevolent. God is good. The Lord is good. Eternally speaking, and that which comes from his hand is good for us. But they desire evil things outside of God's will. And so Paul is warning them about this. He's warning them not to forfeit 
that which is eternally good and the God who gives only that which is good to his children. Do not forfeit those things. And he's saying this with, yes, historical precedent. He's saying Israel did this. Israel craved that which was against the Lord and were revealed to be at many times against God. Even to the point where we see they crucify the Messiah. They reject the Messiah first and then crucify him. Well, it's because their hearts were evil. Jesus even said that about them in warning. What Paul mentioned also in verse 7 is a clue for us as to what their appetite entailed. He's very specific about the people of Israel. We see it in what he called the Corinthians to avoid. He calls them to avoid what the Israelites were partakers of. Look at what he says in verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 7. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. As some of them were. The next part of this verse, if you look at this, it deals with how they expressed their idolatry. How they practiced their idolatry. It was through false worship and a party spirit. Joyfully and demonstratively dancing, singing, and partying toward the idols. So he's saying, do not be as they, they stood up to play. So they were playing. And we, we, you remember when uh, Jesus said these words when he talked about the marketplace, the children frivolously acting as children do, singing and dancing without regard to, uh, to the world before them and without regard to the evil. And, and in that case, using those particular acts to reject the Messiah. He's not saying the children did it. He's using that as a parable, as an analogy. But you see this here. You see that this is false worship. A forced joy, a forced dancing, a forced singing and party. And all this done toward the idols. You remember when Moses goes up to receive the commandments from the Lord and he comes back down. The people are dancing. They're joyful. They're worshiping. What, what does it say uh, prior to the destruction of the earth in the time of Noah? The people were what? They were marrying, being given to marriage. They were celebratory. They were glad. They were at the height of their celebrations. And then the world came to its conclusion. Peter says it'll be the same as such. But this is important to us to consider as we peek ahead from our text, a text that we read as we partake of the Lord's Supper. It's important because all that he's saying ties into how they begin to desecrate even the Lord's table. The elements are laid out for them to be partakers of in reverence, sobriety, thankfulness, fellowship, a celebration certainly of what's to come in the coming kingdom. But they apply what Israel did in their pagan worship and what the Greco-Roman Empire did in their pagan worship, and they begin to infuse it with the Lord's Supper. And so Paul in the next chapter, will warn them against those sins. Paul is not here referring to fellowship. He's not referring here to fellowship. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. That's not the true sense of fellowship. He's referring to hedonism. He's referring to hedonism. That they're living a life of excess, not ecclesiastical wisdom, not proverbial wisdom, 
but they're living a life of excess and play in such a way that they are rejecting God who gave them their lives. He is referring to sinful man celebrating. Celebrating. This is the great pandemic of the day. Sinful man celebrating in the face of his own sins and and before the face of a just and holy God. Sinful man celebrating in the face of his own sins. He celebrates it. He's no longer even ashamed of it. And before the face of a just and holy God, celebrating his sins in the face of God and thinking there's no consequence. That is a, that is a terrifying, terrifying thing. The specific account is to the manner of worship. If you look at verse 7, it is to the manner of worship. There is an account that I believe is in view. He ties it together with some of the other events, and he just goes verse by verse through them. If you look at verse 8, Now let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. They acted immorally. They tried or tested the Lord, and they complained against him. And he says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So there's something that comes with instruction. It's not simply the teaching. It's what you make of the teaching. It's you being able to discern the truth from error in the teaching, but also how then am I supposed to respond in the face of the teaching? That is what instruction is, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So what he's saying is that this is not only for that time, this is not only for the Corinthians. It is for every individual who finds themselves existing in the church age that leads up to what I believe to be the tribulation and the very end of the age to come. The specific account that he mentions, if you really look closely at everything he's saying, it is to their manner of worship. I mean, our minds go to the strange fire offered by Aaron's sons to the Lord and their eventual destruction because of it. Then he goes to those particular acts in their context in verse eight. Then he says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did. If you recall Numbers chapter 25, they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. The Israelites before that time were called to be distinct from the nation surrounding them. Again, this was not a call to ethnic superiority or ethnic distinction for its own end. But holiness. Be holy before the nations who are not holy. And it was supposed to be opposed to the wickedness of their Gentile neighbors. But you know what the Israelites did? They joined their Gentile neighbors. They married them. They played their games. They worshiped their gods. They followed after them. What Paul shows here is that they ignored that call in that particular event. They ignored that call, Numbers 25, and began to act with sexual immorality with the Moabites, forbidden by God. Thus destroyed by his own hand. Your mind can even go to things like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Like you can think of these places that God leveled with his hand because they did not respond in holiness toward his person. 23,000, Paul said, was destroyed in one day. 23,000. Verse 9, remember not to put the Lord to the test. Now many today do this as sport. They do this as sport. It just... It should cause us great alarm. It should cause us great sobriety in our own hearts because many treat this as sport. They really put the Lord to the test. They argue for the things that God has not commanded and they cannot give you chapter and verse, but they proceed in a direction. They attack the Lord and his ministry and his person. They attack his people. I'm talking about secular and religious yet anti-Christ individuals and institutions. They do all these. They put the Lord to the test. You would think the Bible doesn't say explicitly, do not put the Lord to the test because they they put him to the test. And I really mean it. They do it as sport. It's a sport to them. But listen to me very carefully. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Well, how did it show up? Well, Paul led us to this point as he brought up who Israel was before God and before the prophet Moses as he represented God. The Israelites in this account begin to complain against Moses. But think about this. And I was as I was studying. I want you to consider this point even as you engage in further study in this. Isn't it also true how we see the Corinthians begin to complain against the Lord's apostle Paul? They begin to complain against him. It starts with trying to worship him unduly. And then when he isn't who they want him to be, they begin to complain against him. But in Numbers 21, specifically, they blame Moses. They say, you brought us here in the wilderness to die. So they won't even acknowledge that God brought them there. But they say, you brought us here. Essentially, God wanted us to be in Egypt. No, God did not. God wanted to deliver you out of Egypt. And they say to Moses, you brought us here to die. And that complaining worked its way through the camp. And complaining, it's one thing that complaining does. It affects the attitude. He says, nor grumble, as some of them did. And then look at this. We're destroyed by the destroyer. Paul reminded them of a specific account in saying what he said. He reminded the Corinthians about the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, otherwise known as Korah's rebellion. As the wilderness became more difficult, causing the death of some Israelites, just the treacherous conditions caused The death of some Israelites. The sons of Israel complained that Moses and Aaron were responsible for the death and destruction. So they not the deliverance. So Moses and Aaron are responsible in part for the deliverance. They're saying you're responsible for the death and destruction. But more deceptively than this. They could not see it this way, that it was their own grumbling and complaining and disobedience toward God that brought about their destruction. Not God's men. It wasn't those who God had sent that brought about death and destruction. It was their grumbling and complaining. Again, this has only continued their cycle of 
rebellion and disobedience that leads to destruction. And it is why he says for the Corinthians not to grumble. For the Corinthians not to test the Lord. Because I believe that here in this particular part of our text, we're at a crossroads, so to speak. Because the Corinthians are doing the things that Paul is saying. Do not do these things. They're beginning to do them. And he's saying, I have to remind you of the judgment, the consequence if you persist in this way. But again, in verse 11, Paul called the Corinthians to learn from these things. Let them be your tutor. Let them instruct and guide you. Look at the behaviors, the sins, and the way in which the Israelites conducted themselves. And let that be a guide to you. Not a guide in which you follow everything they did, as we said before, but a guide in which you must refrain from certain acts that they did. That these were written specifically for them and for us all in the new covenant to look back to Israel's history and their judgment as to forsake the same sins that brought them under God's judgment toward them. To acquaint your heart and mind with the theological implications of this, I believe that this is a strong text to give you a distinction between the church and the nation Israel. Because it shows you very plainly how God dealt specifically with each. And that Israel's dealings, how he dealt with them, we're to look back at those things. So we must be distinct from them. We must be set apart from them to look back at them. And that Israel was supposed to look forward to the age in which we find ourselves. But they failed to. And therefore, they were at large destroyed. But then there's also further distinction because... At the end of our age, God will deal with them again. And so you see that this is this passage is a very strong one to help you and solidify you in your thinking that there is distinction. But I also believe it's why the adversary wants us to blend them together, because if we think we're like them across the board, we will excuse the things they did across the board. We can live like Israel. We can build rabbinical schools. We can become Pharisees. We can uh, we can approach their apostasy and not think it's so bad because we stand on the other side of it. But we must see ourselves distinct from Israel so that we can carefully scrutinize the judgments of God toward them. They were written for those who would live at the end of the age. Well, guess where you and I are. We are at the end of the age since Christ's ascension. And this means us in the church age now, too. It's why knowing the timeline is important. Those of us in the present, as well as those past to our time in Corinth, all the way beyond our time, if God should tarry his return, all the way beyond our time up until the time that we enter into the tribulation. But what Paul says in ending I believe it's what it's how we had begun. That we must be humble. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. It's everything that I just said about why we must see ourselves distinct from Israel, but why we must view ourselves in light of God's view of us. Well, why? 
Because what this verse points to is there is no room for self-deception. We must bring ourselves low before God. We cannot be deceived about ourselves and then try to approach God any way that we like. We have to know who we are as we stand with him and for him to accomplish what he wills. The next time we'll look at some other features as Paul begins to move us toward the consecration that God requires as we engage in fellowship together. Let's pray.